You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. My friends, my friends, perhaps you can hear that rain belting down on the roof here in Drummond. It's barely five degrees I'm thankful we've finally got some reasonable rain because our dams are half full, never half empty. But yes, uh, it's been a dry but long cold winter here and uh, on such a day I think, look, it's just time. I've got to do it. I've got to repurpose some of our 548 radio shows. So today we're featuring uh, some highlights from two interviews back in 2015 where we circle some of our regular themes including the commons, economic rent and then through to the challenges of big tech. How can it be that it's our data and their profits? And wherever you look, uh, these same principles apply in that uh, if you uh, put a fence up around some land and cordon it off, promoting scarcity you're on a surefire winner you're going to make easy money well similar principles occur in most other areas of business where scarcity eventuates and one of those of course is in in our technology space how can it be that it's our data but their profits so today we've got Paroik Lally from the School of Philosophy and Earthsharing Canada who gives a simple but eloquent example of this madness of the first-come, first-served economy we endure. Then we move over to Max Carlson, the Silicon Valley entrepreneur who uh, keeps producing goodies for all of the online commons that uh, we we so rely on, whether it's our uh, Firefoxes or or Thunderbirds. It's people like Max that... uh, help keep uh, the internet open for the rest of us, saving us all thousands of dollars. All right, let's get into uh, some of the highlights from this discussion with Paroik Lally. The show was called The Stewardship Factor, and I asked him what his elevator pitch was when regarding his Georgist overview. A couple of years ago, I was on a, I was on a vacation with my wife and... Uh, we were on a little island, and um, Canadians go in droves south, typically to the Caribbean in the winter time, just to for a week or two, if they can afford it, to try and escape the joys of the Canadian winter. And uh, you know, it's interesting. You know, I was on a very. It was quite a nice resort, and it was actually on an island, and and. Um, I just realized when I was there that this is this is my 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 now my way of trying to explain to people. Uh, every morning, people go out onto the beach. Um, well, actually, the, the 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 people who work on these resorts and put out these nice uh, reclining areas, etc., and around the pool and. At the same time, every morning, uh, not long after that, people start to surface and uh, claim these spots beside the beach, you know, with their book, a book or a towel. And my wife and I would have these discussions about uh, whether how, you know, whether we or particularly I, who was an early riser, should go down and claim our spots. 
for me, as I have a little bit of a philosopher in them, in me, I, I always tended to sort of resist that. Because as you walk along the beach, what you find is that, you know, a large number of the spots are actually held out of use uh, or not being used, in fact, and just a, a pillow or a towel or, sorry, a book or something like that holding these spots. And I thought it was really a microcosm of, in a way, our mindset. So um, because we in this part of the world understand this concept quite well, you know, I, I say to start to explain things in terms of think of the psychology of that is that, you know, spots being held out of use is obviously clearly inefficient. Uh, it creates acrimony among people because if there aren't enough spots, people are, people who don't have any look at those who are claiming them or holding them out of use. And in very simple terms, I just say to people, what if we change the rules around that behavior on the beach? And instead of allowing everybody just to claim a spot, we start to place a value on it. And then people would choose a spot. And you can choose the, the nicest and best spot if you want, but that is the one that would have the highest rent. And so, therefore, people would start to make different decisions and value decisions. And all of a sudden, the capacity of that beach to hold people would increase because people would only hold spots as long as they were using them or would hold them for less periods of time. And then there would be other places that would be potentially free if people wanted to... Uh, access those spots, the less used ones, that not beside the bar, not beside the ocean, not necessarily the best view. And so I just use that as an example and to say we could change we could change the rules and then we could say, what are we going to do with this revenue? We, we can consider it as total revenue for a community, uh, the community of people who are uh, vacationing there. We can split it up between us or we can... Uh, hold split some of it and use other to improve the local area i thought you know it's and i've actually ha had a couple of group discussions on this point and it's very interesting to see the psychology and how the psychology of people changes in one respect you know we're we're in opposition to each other trying to claim our little corners and in another in the in, in the respect where we change the rules and share then all of a sudden I don't feel the same way about it anymore. I feel that uh, I'm getting an equal share of the benefits that everybody enjoys. There's a sense of justice in the system. Now, you can follow the psychology of that quite far, actually. Um, now, maybe not be an, exactly an elevator speech, but I had to explain that this is the concept that location has value, and the better the location, the higher the value. And that that locational value is created by demand as well as the infrastructure, such as, you know, um, the beauty of the place and the location within that place close to shade or a bar. This is what creates what we call economic rent, and, and it's something that's due to us all. So I'm starting to, 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 to work along those lines. This is Say not necessarily an elevator speech. We'd now have gone about fifty stories, but uh, but I'm trying to find ways for to help people to understand what this concept of economic rent really is. You're on three CRs, Renegade Economist, this week with Porak Lally from Earthsharing Canada. Yes, our cousins at Earthsharing Canada. Check out the website earthsharing.ca. 
And Porok, uh, that's a nice elevator uh, ride. Sure, it might have taken 50 stories, but it helps to paint the picture of this first-come, first-served mentality we live under. And whilst people might flinch at the thought of having to pay for uh, the best uh, banana chair, we call them here in Australia, next to the uh, pool with uh, the the bar nearby with the best view of the ocean as well. In time, you come to realise that by paying just a little bit back, it ensures that uh, more people get to enjoy the best locations. And by paying a little bit back, you can share some of that revenue to perhaps buy everyone a few rounds of drinks at the uh, the poolside bar and uh, encourage a, a bit of uh, community building. I just wonder how, uh, with your philosophical background, the use and abuse of the earth, the stewardship factor, um, how that is either justified or critiqued by uh, the school of philosophy. From a philosophical standpoint, the essential question is one of justice. And again, uh, if I'm to to use uh, just a definition, uh, one that I particularly like, given in one of the talks at one point was the emperor, funnily enough, Justinian said, um, justice, he said, was the constant will to give everyone their due. Uh, and I find that very simple and very, very profound. Um, and in very simple terms, it means, I suppose, for me, is that Whatever I I have that is good, um, you know, I should equally want for everybody else. Um, um, or at another level, you could say what is due to the individual and what is due to the community. So lending to each that which is which is due. So to me, that's the fundamental idea, and I think that once that begins to um, find a place in people's hearts because I find the whole psychology in a way of why you know why do we why do why do we separate from each other why do we see each other as separate versus uh, versus the view of seeing each other as part of a community what is that the what is that the basis of that that's that's one interesting question but I think this the 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 the, the 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 core of it the core of it is justice we also i think in the world today in economic terms you know we talk greatly in terms of the current paradigm return on investment uh, and and we use money as a me- as a means to to measure all of these things and as soon as we veer into that arena psychologically i think we tend to veer into arena of what's mine and what's yours and when we think about money, we tend to think of it as, you know, if I've if there's ten dollars there and, and I've got ten, then you don't have any, or if you have five, I have five. It's a zero sum game. And because we think of terms things in a zero sum game, we do think of things in, as gain and loss. Whereas, as you've said before, I mean, the idea of community is that is that everyone can can grow. Um, that there is possibility of increase for all, prosperity for everyone. One of the things that strikes me about the whole idea of land value capture, if we can make it more obvious and more visceral and more seen, is that 
it it struck me one day that if if we were actually to understand that the land we walk on has a value and in the case of San Francisco <laughs> a very very high value and if we begin to understand that that value is 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 created and actually belongs to the community if that began to take hold then i think we would stewardship would naturally follow from that so in a curious way, it's taking advantage of the mindset that we have today, which is to count everything in terms of money, or not not everything for all people, but it's a common mindset. Translating that somehow and helping people to understand that that, that that value actually is a community value. I saw a very interesting thing in Chicago a couple of years ago where they actually had trees all up and down the boulevard and they actually had tags on these trees and they actually valued every tree for the amount of oxygen that it produced depending on its size and i found it actually quite an eye-opener to help people make a connection back to the environment and the actual real value of a tree uh, i wonder if you could put signs up on the road <laughs> or in various locations and uh, similarly, and say this land has a, this value. What is creating this value? So that we begin to understand it and begin to think and feel as a community, because we would have a much greater level of care, I believe, for our environment if we actually understood, in more concrete terms, the value that it's bringing, not from a more in a more holistic way. I love that concept. The signage would have to be digital, though, because uh, every minute it would be increasing in value, whether that landlord was awake or asleep. <laughs> Indeed. Paroik Lally from Earthsharing Canada. Now, let's segue over to Max Carlson. We're going to uh, jump in with a question on the role of big data uh, as we uh, segue through uh, Snowden and uh, his releases back in 2015 and uh, some of the outcomes that resulted from that. Max, there's a lot of talk here in Australia about big data. And our government is uh, uh, amping up to really spy on what's happening here. We've had this uh, uh, very interesting battle in America over net neutrality. It sounds like the FCC has uh, uh, fought off the uh, monopoly interests there for the moment. It's going to Congress and we'll see what happens. But uh, how do you feel about uh, this, this big data that as someone from the commons, you, you would intrinsically understand that the community creates this data, but uh, the big boys, the Googles and Yahoos are able to make a lot of money out of that data mining. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm of mixed minds about it. You know, it's, it's in a way I feel like, you know, all of these companies and governments, they have so much data that it's pretty hard with that much information to find the needle in the haystack, to find the um, meaningful bits. Um, but I think the biggest danger for, you know, individual freedom is the asymmetry of access to that information. Um, if you look at all of the information, I mean, if you, if you just think about the history of your Google searches and what that reveals about you, it tells a lot about who, you know, an individual is and 
uh, you don't necessarily have access to that. And Google actually, to their credit, they're one of the better companies. You know, they allow you to access your search history and supposedly you can clear it out. You know, all of these things, there's a relative amount of transparency, but still they have way better asymmetrical access to your information about you than you do as an individual. And it's sort of, <clears throat> that's the cost of using a quote unquote free service, right? I mean, it's not really free. They have to make money somehow. And one thing that a lot of people don't realize is Google is the world's largest advertising company, right? Mm. So they own, you know, not just internet advertising, billboards, television advertising. You know, it's a little bit under the radar, but that's really what they are. That's how they make their money, you know, and really when you use a free service, the company that's providing you, and I think Google does a great job, you know, uh, Google search is amazing. It gets better and better. You know, the competition doesn't even come close. Gmail's really great. You know, very, very useful stuff. And it costs a lot of money to develop that. So how do they pay for it? Well, they monetize the users. That's the phrase, monetization. Mm. Yeah, but it, I mean, it's interesting because groups such as um, Bing, for example, the Microsoft-funded group, uh, they didn't have that search history to build their algorithms off. And it sounds like beyond the page ranking that Google originally created their algorithm that shot them into the 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 the, the front line of search engines. Now they also have their algorithm incorporating this user experience, so it tailors economic rent, you know, that delivers you to uh, certain websites that you have a history with, pushes them up the level. But these new players can't get into that marketplace. So how do we create some sort of level playing field so that, you know, whilst Google has this great monopoly power, they're doing good things. Is that the sort of competitive future? Is this the best we can do in terms of technology competition? Um, Yeah. I mean, at this point, I think if you look at internet search, it's going to be really hard for anyone to ever catch up or effectively compete with them at this point. You know, so it's kind of a de facto monopoly. And that may or may not, I'm speaking from a US kind of centric perspective, that may or may not be the same all around the world. But that's just what I see. And, you know, again, it goes back to the, you know, who owns that information? I mean, Google has this enormous wealth of information. And because it's a private company, it's proprietary. You know, there's very little obligation on their part to share it with anybody. But if all of that data about everyone's search history was open, you know, um, you know, I mean, this is kind of a crazy idea. But imagine if all of those closed circuit cameras that are all over town, uh, anyone could go to a Web page, type in a number and go look through that camera. Right. And everybody had access to the feeds rather than them just going to some central office and one person having access to those feeds. I mean, it's kind of an analogy, but you know, it could be the same with your search history data or any other data you generate, you know, it could be out in the commons, you know, with anyone, including you being able to access it. And I think that would be a radically different world rather than having, you know, because then the competition could catch up if they were smart enough, the data would be there and maybe they could make sense of it getting back to big data, you know? So, I mean, I think for me, increasingly the most interesting part of big data is, you know, who has access to all that big data. And who can, you know, who has the facilities and the technology to make sense of it or try to make sense of it? Yeah, well, I've been trying to get my head around how we can address some of the incredible inequality I witnessed in San Francisco, uh, LA last year. And the, you know, these tech wages, they're immense. And I know you live in the Tenderloin, you're seeing some of these pressures yourself, but uh, 
perhaps there's there's a way through with a couple of different options. I'll float by you. Like we've discussed these data uh, centres, which are huge users of energy. They're already having to pay for the, the power, you know, and that's forcing them to think about greener alternatives. But in terms of the inequality, perhaps one angle is to have a system of land zoning for where those data servers are. And instead of them buying cheap land up in the mountains and being able to channel river water through to uh, cool down these server farms, there would be a special zone for that land. So the price would be higher. I don't know how high that'd have to be to reduce, you know, people on uh, $15 million, uh, you know, uh, as as some sort of software expert versus, uh, you know, the local cleaner. But it might act as a way to uh, reduce some of the incredible profits that are happening through these fields. Would that just lead to Google moving their data centres to another country where with some the similar zoning, where a um, a higher land value and higher land tax would probably be uh, placed on them? Uh, no, I don't think so because. Part of what people expect when you're doing something like using Google, you're expecting to get your results back quickly. And a key part of getting those results back quickly is the locality of the server farm. That is, the closer it is to you physically, or at least physically in terms of the network topology, not necessarily you know what building you're in, uh, the faster the results are going to come back to you. So um, I don't think you can ever really get away with that, uh, you know, with, with with completely moving your server farm somewhere else because there are just inherent limits. I mean, if you look at you know, transcontinental telecommunication, well, a lot of it's done via undersea cables and there's limited, you know, supply of data going across those and it costs a lot of money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I I don't really see that happening. I mean, one thing I'd really like to see though is uh, I'd like to see some of these corporations actually pay their fair share in taxes relative to individuals. I mean, it's absurd. Mm, You know, if you look at the Ireland shuffle that uh, Google and Apple have been doing in Europe, to avoid paying, you know, corporate taxes there. It's interesting to see the EU cracking down, you know, and in some mm. ways, uh, you know, uh, possibly forcing, you know, at least Google to, to pay their fair share of at least EU taxes. But don't you think they're just going to find some way to shuffle money through some sort of uh, dark net type uh, system or there's going to be a new Bitcoin type software that will be developed to hide this this currency somehow, some way? No. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, I I think, um, you know, it's a global economy now and, uh, you know, it's getting harder and harder to fight, to hide money. Um, probably the most interesting, uh, part of the Snowden revelations for me was the realization that the NSA had managed to record for the first time an entire country's phone calls for an entire month. Mm. So if you think about that for a minute, and it's a, you know, you think, well, it must be a small country, but where would you think that is? America. <laughs> no, no, no. It's the, uh, the uh, Bahamas, ah. which is a notorious tax shelter. And if you think about that, having everyone's phone calls for an entire month means that you basically got the dirt on everybody who's hiding their money there. Mm. And, you know, so I think uh, there's this sort of radical transparency going on and it's getting harder and harder to hide money, period. Mm. Um, so I don't think, you know, in, in corporations, um, they are beholden to regulation. It's just whether or not, you know, the government step up and enforce it. We're with Max Carlson, open source software programmer. 
discussing some of the intricacies of the tech future, the tech world we live in. So, uh, yeah, one of our specialties here is this tax story and talking about taxing immobile assets, assets that can't move. So we've talked about these data server farms. The other one is the actual DNS numbers that are behind the domain name, the actual, all those string of numbers that actually mean google.com, facebook.com and so forth, tied in with uh, companies such as VeriSign who somehow managed to orchestrate one of the world's most powerful monopolies, the company that that allocates .com, .net and .org domain names. Uh, do you think that putting some sort of tax on those those DNS numbers is something that could be explored in further detail? Or do you think being someone who understands the technology of it, would they just change those numbers in a Bahamas type location? And, you know, as soon as we caught up with them, they'd change to another country. Is this a possible angle forward? Because if you think about that domain name, google.com and all of the incredible cyber squatting stories that have been out there, a lot of money is made out of domain names. And it's something that must pain developers such as yourself to see people making this easy money. How do we find a way out of it? Well, I mean, I guess you could tax the names themselves, right? I mean, you could tax the use of the... Because what the DNS domain name servers do is they take that name and then give you back a number, right? So um, you could tax that facility, I suppose. Um, the fact that you can change what number it gives back means that you, to a certain extent, could move numbers. And so maybe taxing the numbers would be less effective, but, okay. um, you know, know, it's a little bit hard to say. Um, but, you know, the, the, it's interesting because the U.S. is no longer entirely in control of the... Uh, uh, name server infrastructure on the yeah, internet. Yeah, that was a big story last year, wasn't it, that slipped under the radar. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I mean, I think a lot of other people in the world realize, I mean, well, here's a key piece of global, at this point, global infrastructure, and it should be, you know, shouldn't be controlled by a single nation, you know. So, you know, I think it was due to mostly EU demands, if I'm... It wasn't Eric Snowden? Uh, well, I'm sure uh, it didn't hurt. I mean, I'm not sure exactly which one you mean, to be honest. Well, Eric Snowden blowing the lid on the CIA having access to spy. I suppose that's a whole different system, isn't it, through echelon and satellite rather than through the internet? I mean, what was the process? What was the infrastructure they used to spy on the Bahamas, for example? Well, if you want to make a phone call, if you make a satellite phone call, there's a lot of latency, right? And so there's basically echoing on the phone call. That's annoying. So, And that's because it takes time to bounce the signal off a satellite and then back down again. So... A lot of these uh, kinds of conversations occur through cables, right? So if you can manage to tap that cable, then, you know, in some ways you can listen in on it. And, you know, I mean, you know, that's kind of what, what you know, what parts of the revelations I read kind of, you know, talk about, you know, using that strategy. So, for instance, rather than breaking directly into Yahoo or Google, then you just tap the cable between their data centers and then you've got, you know, um, then you can kind of, you know, watch what's going by, you know, passively. And that seems to be the strategy that's used um, by these various uh, agencies. 
Mm, it's it's a, a huge issue, and I just wonder how much security is placed around these cables uh, coming out of uh, the Californian coastline. Have they got uh, some serious protection around that? Well, I don't know. That, I don't know that you really can because they're running along the ocean floor. So I don't know how you really oh, hit, when it hits landfall. Yeah, I mean, but somebody can still tap it in the ocean. I mean, people, you know, that's been done before. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to do. I mean, I think the only way to really protect yourself or for, for somebody to protect oneself is to use encryption. And then, you know, it kind of doesn't matter what you're listening in on. It's apparently noise, you know. Right, there you have listeners. Uh Today's show with Paroik Lally and Max Carlson uh, sharpening your insights on the role of the commons and uh, the integrity we need to deliver true justice to all. My name's Carl Fitzgerald. Keep in touch via at Earthsharing on Twitter and over at earthsharing.org.au. The show notes will be. During this long, cold winter, I hope you're keeping your friends your family sane as we all support each other through this mad, mad world.